Five points on a faith worth having. Point number one, a faith worth having would help us find life's deeper meaning. Life's deeper meaning. Socrates is famous for saying the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life. He kind of saw, he looked around the, his, his community, his society, and he saw that people are just drifting. They're just floating. They're just doing what, they, what their animal drives, what their natural passions uh, dictate. They're running after the stuff that they want themselves or the stuff that their family or their community says they should want. They're, they're internalizing a drive for what matters in life from the, their surroundings. They're driven. They're drifting. And he was... He was Views that as a tragedy. Socrates views this as a tragedy. How come nobody is stopping, coming apart, asking the question of why are we here at all in the first place? What is life for? Why do we die? Why is there good and evil? Why is there beauty and tragedy? Why is there romance and comedy? What are the humans for? Why is there something rather than nothing? It just seems like people don't, it, it seems like they don't stop to ask the most fundamental questions of existence and formulate meaningful answers and then live by them. Instead of this, we just drift. And, and Socrates says, we waste our lives. The unexamined life is not worth living. I agree with him. I agree with him. Uh, here's the kind of questions that I think are pressing questions that we end up worrying about instead of the deeper questions. Now, you might say, well, these are important questions. Romance. Who will I marry? Who will I love? Who will love me? Uh, how will the kids be? Are the kids going to be okay? Uh, where are they going to go to college? Where am I going to go to college? What am I going to do for a job? How am I going to pay the bills? And you go, well, Tim, if you can't pay the bills, you, can't even, you don't have the luxury of sitting around asking the question of why anything. I get it. I hear you. But what I'm saying is, if, the, if you live and die, and the only thing that you've thought about is where's my next meal coming from, I think you've wasted your life. Uh, clothes, what will I wear? How will people think about me if I don't wear the right clothes? How will they think about me if I do? The environment, how can we save the trees and the fish and, and the sea turtles and all the other good stuff? I, I, I'm so for saving the environment. But it seems to me, but there's a deeper question we have to answer before we get onto that, which is why? Why? Because the assumption behind all these things like the environment, or how about social justice? Let's fix the world. Let's make less injustice. Let's make less inequality. Let's make things more fair and right. But why? What about the first question, which is why? Why the assumption that people matter? But why do people matter? Can we ask real deep questions that would help inform us in these more pressing questions? And some people would say, well, who cares? Let's just fix what we know is intuitively wrong. But what about why? Instead of just assuming it matters because I feel it matters and then getting to work, can we ask a deeper question? Scientific advancements, healthcare improvements, all of these I think are pressing questions. They're pressing questions. But they don't even make sense to me unless we first ask the deeper questions and formulate meaningful answers. Deeper questions like, what is life? What is the meaning of life? Why? Why? Why do we die? 
what? And how does that relate to the first question of what's the meaning of life? Is there a God? Or are we alone in the universe? Is there just stuff? And some of the stuff is self-aware. Why does love seem to dominate the human consciousness? Why is love the central theme of most of our writing and our praying and our thinking and our fighting and our scratching and clawing and our heroism and our wars? Why is love such a deep thing? Why do we all seem to know that there's a difference between right and wrong, whether we believe in any kind of religious truth at all? Everybody believes in right and wrong except for a few insane, crazy people. Why? Where did that come from? Is there purpose? Does anything matter? How, how do I leave a legacy? And what legacy do I want to leave? To me, these, all, these aren't even all the deeper questions, but these are some of my questions. And they didn't go away just because I'm a Christian, even though I came to Christian faith in answer to me asking these questions. Or maybe another way to put it is doubt, doubt, about my previous worldview, not being able to answer these questions, led me to Christian faith. Doubt led me to faith. <clears throat> so that's point number one. A faith worth having would help us answer the deeper questions. It's not just, a faith worth having is not just a faith that you have because you grew up in the family you grew up in, in other words. There comes a time when we must choose for ourselves what we believe and why and then live deeply in it. I do think there's people who live their whole life going to church because they grew up in a Christian family and that's just what you do. Or going to mosque because you grew up in a Muslim family and that's just what you do. Or meditating daily as a Buddhist because that's, you grew up in a Buddhist family and that's what you do. Or listening to NPR on Sundays because you grew up in a materialist, scientific, agnostic family and that's just what you do. And so on and so forth. But at some point, I think you either have to own your own belief and fully embrace it or reject it and live something that you authentically believe. This is why sometimes when a prodigal runs away from home, it looks terrible to the family. But if he had stayed home, he would have stayed as lost as his older brother. He would have been in the house physically, but not in the house spiritually. And so it looks like going away from God is always moving toward God if the intention of the person's heart is to authentically live what they believe and to find the truth. Did you hear what I just said? Someone who looks like, oh no, they've stopped coming to church. What's going on? Listen, if you leave church because you're seeking the truth, you're actually moving in the direction of the Jesus church, that it, of the Jesus that church is all about. And if you find him, I think he'll send you back. Point number two, a faith worth having would be good news for the world because a faith worth having makes better people. Number one, a faith worth having answers, helps us answer the deep questions. Number two, a faith worth having makes better people. It should, shouldn't it? It would be weird if, and a lot of the world believes this, it would be weird if the more devoted we become to Jesus, the more judgmental we become the more politically uh, upset and judgmental we become, the more resentful we become, the more rude we become, the more greedy we... That would be weird, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you think that that faith, that it would be better to not believe at all 
and be nice? I would. Jesus would too. Matthew 23, he's, he's criticizing the religious leaders of his day and he says, By the t- you guys travel over land and sea to make a single convert and when you're done, they're twice a son of hell as you yourself. In other words, you're going to hell even though you're going to church and your converts are going to the deeper part of hell than you yourself will go to. That's not a faith worth having. Unbelief would be superior in God's eyes than that faith. The faith worth having makes better people. How many of you would agree with the statement, I want to leave the world better than I found it? I do. I also want to leave the woods better than I found it and my street better than I found it. Right? I want to leave my community better than I found it. A faith worth having does this because it changes the believer. Not because the believer gets to work fixing the world, but because God changes the believer. You can have a perfect design for a house, perfect, beautiful design for the house. But if it's poorly constructed, we're going to have problems. But even more fundamental than that, if the foundation ain't strong, and I was about to say, if the ma- i got to stay in the light, stay on the carpet is light. If you choose the wrong materials, I don't care how good your design is, I don't care how skilled of a builder you are, if you choose the wrong materials, it will not work. I can make a perfectly, a perfect looking golf club out of wood. It's not a good idea. And I think, you know, you, Daniel has this, has this vision of all these various kingdoms, and one of the kingdoms he envisions is a kingdom where the feet of the statue is made of clay. Do you remember this? That's humans. But we imagine that the problem with the world is other people are bad, and I am good. And so the solution that many of us fall into, and it's a wrong solution, is to either fight against those other people or assert our agenda so that we will fix the world. But you can't build skyscrapers out of clay. We think the problem is somebody, someone else, but actually the problem is all of us. The problem is human nature. Again, going back to the deeper question. What is the meaning of life? Why do we die? Why do we all have a moral sense? And how's come all of us know deeply in our bones we break it? What's wrong with us? And also, what's right with us? Humans are incredible and pretty horrible at the same time. John Cleese back in 1987, who knows Monty Python? Good. Monty Python, John Cleese, one of those actors. This is what he said on TV in England in 1987. It's 2022 right now. He said this in 1987. See how it feels. Does it land as applying today? I need a drink of water. Thank you so much, Carl. Apparently playing bass and singing and then... Yeah, okay. John Cleese, 1987. Seriously, though, we've heard... Can I do his accent? Probably shouldn't even try, but I want to. We've heard a lot about extremism recently. A nastier, harsher atmosphere seems to be arriving everywhere with more abuse and bover boy behavior. I had to Google bover boy. It just means like thuggish, uh, 
meanness. A harsher atmosphere with abuse and bobber boy behavior, less friendliness, less tolerance, less respect for parents. Is it sounding like, did he say this today or 1987? Can you open that for me? Oh, thank you. You're awesome. Okay, so when I grew up, I was told we're not supposed to call people awesome because only God is awesome. You're fantastic. <laughs> so he says, extremism is spreading and people are mean. And then he says, all right, but what we never hear about extremism is the advantages. Well, the biggest advantage of extremism is that it makes you feel good because it provides you with enemies. And let me explain. The great thing about having enemies is that you can pretend that all the badness in the whole world is your enemies, and it's in your enemies, and all the goodness in the world is in you, and people like you. It's attractive, isn't it? So, if you have a lot of anger and resentment in you anyway, and you therefore enjoy abusing people, then you can pretend that you're only doing it because these enemies of yours are such very bad persons. Is it, shouldn't it be people? But okay, he's British. And that if it wasn't for your enemies, you would actually be a very good-natured, courteous, and rational person all the time. So if you want to feel good about yourself, be an extremist. Okay, so you're going to be an extremist. Now you have a choice. If you join the hard left, they'll give you their list of authorized enemies, almost all kinds of authority, especially the police, the city, Americans, I like that one, that's funny. Judges, multinational corporations, public schools, various newspaper owners, fox hunters, what, he's British, generals, class traders, and of course, moderates. Or if you'd rather be an extremist on the hard right, no problem, fine, you still get a lovely list of enemies, only they're the different ones. Noisy minority groups, Unions, Russia, I love that, that's funny, weirdos, demonstrators, welfare sponges, meddlesome clergy, peaceniks, the BBC, strikers, social workers, communists, and of course, moderates. Now, once you're armed, yeah, I noticed he mentioned in both groups, uh, don't be in the middle, you know, pick a team. Now, once you're armed with one of these super lists of enemies, you can be as nasty as you like and feel yet that your behavior are, behaviors are morally justified. Then you can strut around using people and telling them that you could eat them for breakfast and still think of yourself as a champion of the truth and a fighter for the greater good and not the rather sad, paranoid, schizoid that you really are. I had to look up what is a paranoid schizoid. It's apparently a developmental stage where some people get stuck, where they view the whole world as, as separated into good people who are all good and bad people who are all bad. They don't understand the shades of gray and the moral complexity of humans, that the line between good and evil doesn't run through the society, it runs through every human heart, right? Like Loki says, I know something little boys don't, no bad guys are all bad, and no good guys are all good. doesn't mean there aren't bad guys and good guys. It just means it's the sliding scale. So every four years, I feel a great sadness about the amount of spiritual adultery 
that I see in the church as we pine away after our human leaders and we put our trust in chariots and we put our trust in horses instead of the Lord. I'm not saying don't vote. Don't mishear me. I'm saying don't trust in human kingdom stuff when we belong to a different kingdom. I'm deeply jealous on Jesus' behalf because it's my job to present to him a faithful bride. Which leads to my next point. Point number three, a faith worth having sticks close to Jesus. If you missed it, my last point was faith should make a better society by making better people. That was a simple point. Point number three, a faith worth having sticks close to Jesus. Isn't he the point of our faith? We need a teacher. We need someone not just to tell us how, we need someone to show us how. And we need someone to help us. I I don't know that just more teachings would be helpful at all. We already had enough good teachings before Jesus came. What we lacked was someone to show us and someone to help us. In other words, if all we had was more teachings, all we'd have is law, but he gave us grace. And by the way, mercy and grace aren't the same things, are they? The gospel's not just mercy. You won't be punished. It's grace. I'm going to treat you and love you and help you and be with you as though you'd never sinned. I'm for you. I'm with you. I'm in you. I'll never leave you. I'm here to help. Did you know Holy Spirit, one of his names is helper? He's here to help. He wants to help. It's like he wakes up in the morning and he says, how can I help? Do you need any help? I'd like to help. All right? Jesus is the most influential person in history, and he never once sought office. In fact, he never even sought a following. He, drove, he tried to get rid of the crowds. He was always trying to lose them. He was always trying to get alone and get away so he could minister to the individual. He did minister to crowds when he, when he found he had compassion on them, but he was never trying to draw a crowd. What drew a crowd was the power that was coming from him. The power that was flowing from him because he was united to his father in such a way that the divine life was so interchanging between the father and the son that it would flow from him. And every time he opened his mouth, his words would cause those who really had open hearts to come alive. So he couldn't help but draw a crowd. And then when he gave his life, you could say his movement ended in failure in terms of this is the opposite of what any of his disciples wanted was for him to be crucified as a fake and as a phony as a wicked man. And yet, God raised him from the dead and made his failure, made his weakness the power of God, made it the victory of God, made his foolishness the wisdom of God. And then, those who followed him became brand new kinds of people, living from the inside out, so that his disciples, who once fled from him on the night of his crucifixion, became so transformed that they stood boldly before the Sanhedrin and said, we can't stop doing what we're doing. The people saw their boldness and saw their wisdom and took note and said what? They've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. Stick close to Jesus and his kind of life, divine life, begins to rub off on us. In the Bible, that kind of life is called eternal life, but it's referring more to the nature of God in that life than just its duration.
We need a teacher to show us who we are, why we are, and how to live. See, our church's whole mission statement centers around Jesus. We're a family gathered around Jesus, and our mission is to be disciples of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The purpose of all churches is to help people become one with Jesus. Jesus, Matthew 5.14, says to the church, you are the light of the world. The world does not believe that, by the way. I would say 50% of the church doesn't believe that. I report you decide. You know who does know that the church is the light of the world? That's true. Jesus does know that. You know who else knows? The enemy knows. You know who else knows? The whole creation knows. The ground beneath your feet knows. The trees know. The fish in the sea know. The birds know. The squirrels know. Them absolutely dumb horseshoe crabs that go waddling up on land, plant their eggs, and then just lay there in the hot sun and die, they know. I'm getting this from Romans 8, 19. The whole creation groans, eagerly waiting to give birth to something. And then a few verses later, verse 19 of Romans 8 says, the creation waits in eager expectation for what? For the sons of God to be revealed. Why? Why is the earth trembling and longing and groaning and eagerly anticipating the sons and daughters of the Most High to come forth? Because the creation's freedom, liberation, is bound up in ours. We were set as God's image bearers with dominion over the creation. We were put in charge. And when we left our post, the whole creation was plunged into decay along with us. They're longing for the sons and daughters of God to return to Jesus, to be transformed, to come into our true identity. The church might not know it's the light of the world. The world definitely doesn't know the church is the light of the world. The whole creation knows. It knows better than we do. So going back to point number two, faith making better people, we could have perfectly good laws. We could have perfectly good laws. But if we had wicked judges and juries, we would not have justice. We could have terrible laws, but if we had good judges and juries, we would have justice. They would bend the laws, they would change the laws. Abe Lincoln said something funny. He said, you need to follow bad laws strictly so that they will be changed. Isn't that an interesting idea? Expose the the foolishness of a bad law. Don't just bend it and keep the status quo. I just think that's interesting. 
But if there were good people on the earth, people sticking close to Jesus, transformed from the inside out so that they glow with the energy of God, so that they actually become one with God like Jesus is one with God, I don't think you could stop Amos 5.24 from happening. Do you know it? I don't think you could stop justice from rolling on like a river and righteousness like, righteousness like a never-failing stream if we'd stick close to Jesus. Not, not if we set ourselves to get busy fixing the world. I, I don't trust my judgment of the world, to be honest. You know, bees don't know their mission. They just want to get that nectar. They have no clue they're pollinating the whole ecosystem. You know, it's above the bee's pay grade to understand the mission and purpose of the bee. But when it lives its true nature, its divinely created nature, it fulfills the Father's intention, whether it knows it or not. And I know that if we stick close to Jesus and do whatever he says, he'll do the thinking. He'll do the big picture smarts. We won't have to figure everything out. That's my thing, is I'm trying to figure it out. And then people say, you're overthinking. Oh, I'll just stop thinking then. Can't. Point four. A faith worth having would open our eyes to the glory of God in creation. Open our eyes. I came to faith, as I said earlier, because of doubt. And what do you mean, Tim? What do you mean, doubt? Well, my worldview at the time that excluded a good creator, I didn't know if there was a God or not. I didn't know. All I knew was we're here. Life is really hard and beautiful and scary and strange, and I'm full of desires. I'm full of desires. There was too much goodness, beauty, and truth in the world and too much evil in the world for my worldview to satisfyingly answer. Is satisfyingly a word? Where's my English people at? Satisfyingly? I had doubts. I couldn't answer the deep questions. And I had a t- conversation with my cousin up in the mountains, and I, he was trying to tell me Jesus is Lord and good and all this stuff. And I was like, you only believe that because you growed up in that. I probably didn't say it like that. I said, if you were born somewhere else, you'd believe something else. Bottom line. You're a product of your environment. And I'm supposed to trust my intuition when my intuition was framed and formed by this worldview, by these, all these Christians? I think it'd be wise for me to doubt it and go, go on a search for truth. And then he says, well, do you think there is such a thing as truth? That's a, that's a, that seems like a dumb question, but it wasn't. Do you believe there's such a thing as truth? And I said, do you mean reality? You know what I mean? I'm working it out in my head. Does he mean reality? Yes, there is reality. I know that much. Okay? Tim, do you, do you believe a human can know the truth? Oh, now that's the real issue, isn't it? We all believe there's such a thing as reality. But do I think that puny little ant-brained human Tim can get there? I don't know. But I'll tell you what I figured out. If I can't, then life's not only tragic, it's comic tragic. It's a joke, a cruel, sick joke. Because I feel meaning in my bones. 
Wake up in the morning and I feel like my life matters. I feel like my friends matter. I feel like my friendships matter. I feel like beauty matters. I feel like doing right and doing wrong matter. And when I do wrong, I hate it. And I even hate myself. And when I do right, I feel good about it. And I feel good about myself. And when I see somebody do the hard right thing, I feel good about it. And I want to say, that's what it should be. That's what life's for. But if you can't know the truth, then all my intuitions are just biologically based, evolutionarily advantageous deception. I'm not going to take time to explain. You get it. So I came to faith because I could no longer pretend that beauty was meaningless, that morality was made up, that my relationships don't matter. It just kept seeming untrue that we came from nowhere and we're headed to nowhere and that everything will just be forgotten and we're, we're conscious now we won't be soon and then the universe will dissipate and atrophy into cold nothing. That's kind of the scientific worldview, isn't it? Well, Tim, Stephen Hawking has the oscillating universe theory that says there's going to be infinite number of big bangs and then big contractions and then bangs again. Well, that doesn't improve anything. It still means nothing. And now, so it was doubt that led me to faith. But now that I'm in the Christian faith, do you think I still doubt? Yes. So when I was not a Christian, I had doubts. I had doubts about my worldview at the time and could, it couldn't account for the data. Now that I am a convinced Christian, I still have doubts. Is this really true? I teach so strongly and passionately, but what if I'm wrong? I have those thoughts. I have those feelings. I have those days. And I don't really want to say it in here too much because I don't want to encourage you to feel like, oh no, if the, if the preacher has doubts, what hope is there of me not having doubts? Not much, buddy. You're going to have doubts. In fact, you can't be brave without some fear involved. Because courage, by definition, is doing the right hard thing in the presence of genuine threat with fear. And I don't think we'll be walking by faith when he's right in front of my eyes. Faith is the choice I make to trust what I know to be true even when I don't see it and feel it. In other words, I don't think you can walk by faith without doubt. So I still experience doubts even though I'm a Christian. However, there's a huge difference between the way that my worldview worked then and now. My Christian faith is not one of my beliefs that I happen to hold. It rather, my Christian faith, is the larger view of the world by which I interpret and make sense of every other thing I see. When I wasn't a Christian, almost nothing made sense. Constantly, most things caused doubt. Now that I am a Christian, so many things make sense, and some things cause me doubt. You don't have to agree with me about that. I'm just telling you my experience. Now that I'm a Christian, my eyes have been confirmed that my intuition is correct. Because my intuition said, life is crazy amazing. Life is miracles. It's like the world, this is the Christian worldview, it's like the world 
is charged with an invisible electric current that runs through everything. And like everything you see is crackling and buzzing with an, with an energy, pulsing with a sense of life. Even the soil, and scientists will confirm what I'm saying, the soil is full of life. It's crazy. From the insects all the way to the stars, beauty, intelligence, energy, purpose. Why? Why does everything seem to want to live? Why? So I came to faith because I experienced what the angels in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 before the throne are constantly saying, which is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What does he say? What do they say? The whole earth is full of his glory. When you, when you cross the Chesapeake Bay, when you go over that technological and engineering marvel that is the Bay Bridge, do you feel this? When you see the mist hang over the water or the texture of the water given whatever that day's weather, because it's different every time, when you see the way the light reflects off the surface or you see a solitary gull not flapping its wings but hanging in the wind, motionless relative to the bridge with its intelligent little black eyes scanning the horizon, seeing every detail with wit. I hate their voices, but they are clever. When you see the little boats below full of little little clusters of humans seeking fish, or you see the huge freighters plodding slowly toward the horizon, when you see the trees mark the shape of the land in the distance, don't you feel this? Heaven and earth are full of his glory. And beneath the water surface, don't you imagine an unseen world where if you could see through the water, if it was clear, You'd see it as a, a ravine full of creatures so alien from us that their enemies and their terrain and their lives, we probably wouldn't survive a week if we traded places with them. And yet, cars just plodding along to work, to holiday, to wherever they're going, how many of them are aware like people in an airplane going 600 miles an hour at 20,000 feet, pull the little window shut so they can look at their phone. You're above the clouds. Wake up. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. That was point four. Faith worth having would give us a vision of the glory of God in all things. Final point, a faith worth having would arm us with the courage to embrace the mystery of life even in hard times. To me, life's a mystery. I don't know what it is, guys. I don't know what life is. I don't. I guess I'm supposed to. If I'm a preacher, I'm supposed to know. I don't know. I guess people, you can define life biologically. 
You know, some people would define a human being alive if they have a pulse or if they have the right brain waves. I don't, but that's not life. That's not life. Those are vital signs. Vital signs are not the same as life. Angels don't have vital signs. Maybe they do, but I don't know them. We can define it theologically. I, I wouldn't try. <laughs> but none of my answers take away the mystery element. In fact, this is why I like the way the Bible talks. Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Well, that's really not a definition of what life is. It's a poetic expression of something amazing. It doesn't take away the mystery. It keeps the mystery intact. God then granted us the ability to reproduce, and then Eve held up her baby in her arms and said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. When Gabe was born, I was feeling the same way. I, you were very small. You were bigger than this. But I remember looking into Gabe's eyes when he was brand new and saying, like, how can this be? And the Father spoke to me in my spirit and said, you're made in my image. Love begets life. I still don't fully understand Something mixed with the dust of the earth in the breath of the Almighty, and there you are. <laughs> what? Sometimes I, I, I just cry because we don't live forever, and so I sit there contemplating the shortness of life, and I just cry. And my wife says, that's because you're melancholy. And I don't know what that means. <laughs> but I'm here now, and you're here. And the mathematical probability that you and I would be here now, alive, is so slim that I think it wouldn't be too much of a stretch for me to call it a miracle. And just like those people on the airplane are crossing the bridge, who's awake to this? Real faith wakes us up to the mystery and keeps us open-hearted toward it. Not shut down, sleepwalking, the, the walking dead, right? Here's your conclusion. There's an actor who died last year named Clark Middleton. He played a, a character named Glenn on a show called The Blacklist. <clears throat> the makers of the show decided... Since the actor died, the character died too. And so they had the hero of the story, main character, protagonist, not really a hero, Raymond Reddington, give the character a tribute, and they wanted the tribute to also be about the actor. I've watched it numerous times. It's about a man named Glenn. Glenn was, he was so many things, a son a civil servant, proud member of the Spare Me bowling team, two-time runner-up at the Southern Regional Tournament, and a great, a truly great tracker. But he was, oh, brother, he was so much more. It was a lot more than that. Glenn was infuriating. 
insulting, just so maddening. He was a hedonist, a chauvinist, a liar, and a cheat. But there was one thing that Glenn was not. And that's afraid. Glenn was not afraid. He wasn't afraid of judgment, being wrong. He wasn't afraid of friendship, romance, a bad joke, a good laugh. He was never afraid of a good time or bad timing or consequences or of an impossible task or any kind of danger. And he certainly wasn't afraid of me, ever. No matter how hard or unfair life was to Glenn, Glenn loved life right back. He embraced it without reservation, regret, or remorse. And that is rare. I wish, I wish more people were unafraid like Glenn. It's the thing about him I'll miss the most. Stand for your benediction. May we live this year, 2022, deeply, sticking close to Jesus, taught by Jesus, changed by being near him, and thrilled with the beauty we see around us. May we become unafraid, loving life so fully that God gets glory and honor that he would not have got if we had not been here. Amen.